Well, we're in this series, Something's Got to Change. If you've got a worship folder, you can pull it out. There's a place you can take notes in there. We've been looking through the book of Nehemiah in the Bible. You can start looking for that. What we've been considering is the power of vision to change the world around us. And vision's not just, you know, this helps. But we're talking about that figurative sense of vision where, like Andy Stanley describes it in his book, Visioneering. It's a mental picture of a preferred future. So you think about it. we're going to be somewhere in the future. It's a it's doing things to get you to a preferred future, the kind of future you'd like to be. Things that not necessarily are going to happen. It's not inevitable. But if you would work toward it, you know that you can bring it into a reality. And how do you do that? And so vision starts in our hearts and in our lives when we experience a tension between how things are right now. And how we would like them to be. How they could be. And then as you start to dream about the way your life could be six months, a year, five years from now, you start to feel even a moral impetus. Like It's not just like what it could be, but it's maybe like what it should be. And then you feel this urge to make that a reality and put all your effort behind that. And when you do that, great things happen. We've been looking at so many different stories of people who had a vision of a preferred future and what happened. I just read a great story about this that happened last month. This is Jessica Simmons. And Jessica and her family were down in uh, Florida vacationing on the Gulf Coast when she was, this is back in July, she heard screaming. And it was so bad, her immediate thought was, oh my gosh, there's a shark in the water. She starts to look around, where's where's my family? And she looks where the people are going nuts. And as she watched and realized what was unfolding, it wasn't a shark in the water. There was a large group of people who had been in the water that were grabbed by a riptide current and were being pulled out further into the ocean rapidly. They were already more than a football field out into the ocean and going fast. And what everybody was yelling about was, these people were not going to be rescued before they drown. It was that happening that quickly. So Jessica sprung into action. And she said, I was scared, but I knew that we had to do something. And so she started uh, just assembling people. If she was like, everybody's, what do we do? She started saying, here, you do this. They started making a human chain out into the water. You grab this hand, you grab this hand. They went over 100 yards into the water. You can see the picture there. Isn't that amazing? And when they got to the end of the chain and they're out as far as they can get into the ocean, they were still about 10 yards away from the people. 10 people out there just floating away quickly. Jessica said, I, I knew what I needed to do. Like, I know this is what I'm good at. I can swim. Didn't have a rope to throw, didn't have a life jacket, nothing. She had a boogie board. So she took herself out to the end of this line. And then she swam out to the first person who looked they were struggling the most with the boogie board. And she said, I knew if I just kept their head above water and I got them back to the end of the chain that they'd be okay. And so she swam and she grabbed the first person, drug them back to the end of the line, and they started passing that person. She went out. Ten people are alive in August because back in July, Jessica saved ten people out of the ocean. Isn't that an amazing story? This is what happens when you have a vision of a preferred future. Her preferred future was, I don't want to see those ten people drown. And I'm going to do something about that. Those people could have drowned. This could have been a story of 10 people drowned off the coast of Florida today. But it wasn't. It was a story of 10 people were rescued because somebody said, I think something should be done, and I think I'm the person to do it. And she took this, and she said, you know, it was scary. But this is, this is what I had to do. In fact, it's like what I was made to do. And that's the power of vision. It cuts through the clutter. It's, it cuts through the distractions. It cuts through the fear that you have. And it it's pushes you and prompts you and says, I'm going to make this happen. This can change. This should change. And I'm going to do it. You know, vision says people don't have to drown. But vision also tells you, I don't have to worry about my finances every single day. Maybe that's my reality right now, but I can see a point in the future with, if I put some things in place and I start doing a budget, maybe there's a point a year, a few years from now, where I'm actually on top of things, not behind it. Vision says, 
We don't have to worry that our kids are going to you know, fall away. We're going to raise our kids in such a way, and we're going to position things, and we're going to pray for them in such a way that they're going to grow up to follow God and love Jesus, and that's going to be our reality because we have a vision of what our kids can be like when they're adults. Vision says, I want to be a generous person. And so you start to position your life around that ideal, and you start to imagine your life as a generous person, not as a stingy person, or as somebody who you know, doesn't even have the ability to be generous. Vision says, I'm going to make some significant changes in my life. And yeah, maybe my whole family has always been tripped up by this thing, but I'm going to be the person in my family who starts to get this right. And you make some changes, and maybe being here at church is part of that. And your vision for your future is that it's going to be better. And maybe God is helping you with that. And I just think that's amazing, and kudos to you if you are here and that's your story. Because when people have a vision of what could be and what should be, and they start acting on that, when they start inviting God into that process, that's when amazing things come into the world. And it's not just inevitable that things are going to be the way they are always. God has created this world with, with us, with free will. And there are some things that you say, well... If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. No, that's fatalism, and that's absolutely not how God created the world. There are some good things that could have been but weren't because the person that could have done it just didn't do it. And we don't want that to be our story. I, uh, I, and today I want to talk about one of the greatest roadblocks, though, that gets in between us. Like, you've got this idea, you've got this dream, and you say, we're going to do this. And you don't quite get there. And, and, and everybody knows what this is like. You've probably been there. You had some great aspirations and you didn't get there. And, and I know what it's like. You know, you've got the idea, but then something derails you. You get distracted. You, you get focused on other things. Urgent things start demanding your attention. And it pulls you away from the important thing that you said. I'm going to do this. And then you look back and you go, what happened to that? I was so on fire about this idea and now I'm not. Where did they go wrong? You, you know, you can dis- get distracted from your, di- your vision and... And distractions will derail your vision, your idea of what could be and what should be, the thing that God put on your heart. I go back to Jessica, the girl who um, rescued all those people who were drowning. She said this. She was being interviewed by a news channel. She said, I I think other people should be inspired to actually help more, to come up with a solution and work with other people you might not know. Today, there's always something going on. We're always on the phone. We're always texting. We're always cutting through traffic. We're always going at a fast pace. We need just to sit back and look around and realize there's a lot more to life than all that. This is what I want to talk about this morning as we go through this series. We've been looking at a visionary named Nehemiah. So if you got one of these, you can go ahead and pull this open now. And uh, it's a true story. Nehemiah's story is told in the Old Testament of the Bible. And even though he lived 2,500 years ago, what I have found is his story is so relevant and practical to us today. There's so many touch points where I go, well, that's just like life is now. And one of the things that he had to deal with was, as he had this vision of a preferred future, he had to deal with some distractions himself. And one of the things that's so compelling about this is this Jewish man named Nehemiah is just a textbook example of leadership, of a compelling vision, and of getting a really big project done in a very short amount of time. And so that's why we've been studying through it. And one of the things this, this story, I think, for us today, it makes it so relevant is, you see, he was a normal guy like us. He had a lot of distractions that popped up that tried to derail him from his vision that God had put on his heart. So we're going to look at that. But as we do, I want to just go ahead and give a quick recap some of you might, you might have slept since last time we talked about this, or you, you're coming in here and you missed a few weeks, so let's just catch up. What's going on in his bio, his bio? How did we get to this point where we're putting his story in the Bible? So 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah, he's Jewish, but he wasn't born and raised in Judah. 
in Israel. He was actually born and raised in Persia, which is now modern-day Iran. And you say, well, what's a Jewish guy doing in Persia? That goes back about 150 years before his lifetime. It goes back about as far for him as the Civil War is for us. But, you know, the Civil War continues to have ripples today for us. And so some things in his history happened. His whole family lived in Persia. He was actually a pretty influential person. He was the sommelier, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. I don't know if that rings any bells for you. Artaxerxes' dad was Xerxes, who was married to Queen Esther. Esther's story is in the Bible. Esther was also Jewish. But these are people we just know about from history. Did you see the movie 300? Spartans and the Persians. These people. This guy. So there you go. It's real, real people. And so Nehemiah is his cupbearer, his sommelier. But that job entailed so much more than just picking the right wine for the steak. You were a counselor, you were a confidant to the king, you were a trusted advisor. This was a very influential position. Not also to mention that you're putting your life on the line every time you sample that wine to make sure it's not poison before the king drinks it. But he's in this influential position in the capital city of Susa, Persia. It's a citadel city. That's going to matter here in a little bit. So he's born and raised there, but he's Jewish, so he still cares about what happens in Judah, especially the capital city of Jerusalem. Everybody who's Jewish cares about what happens to Jerusalem. Well, his brother Hannah and I actually took a trip to Jerusalem to see how the people who'd moved back there were doing. Hannah and I came back to Nehemiah in Susa and said, oh, dude, it is not going well there at all. You know, all those people like our great grandparents who moved back there and our grandparents who moved back there. They are living in appalling, shameful conditions. Jerusalem still doesn't have any walls. You look at me like if somebody were to come to me and say, you know what? Darden Prairie doesn't have walls. I'd be like, so? <laughs> Nobody has walls. But in that historical context, that mattered. So a city without walls back then would be like for us today, not having a front door on our house. It leaves you vulnerable and open to it. It's like not having 911 in your city. When you don't have walls or gates around your city, anyone can come in at any time and take whatever they want. And you don't have a sense of security. It's a shameful thing. So when Nehemiah's brother Hannah and I comes back from Jerusalem and says, here's what the condition is, it felt like a punch to the gut for Nehemiah. And it disturbed him deeply. Now his brother came to him in the fall, and Nehemiah just started wrestling with this idea and praying about it. Because in his mind, he already is starting to see a vision of a Jerusalem that's secure and safe and prosperous with walls. And he sat on that vision from November until the spring. Now picture this, Nehemiah lives in Susa, the citadel city, uh, the capital city of the Persian Empire. He knows what walls can do for a city. The prosperity, the sense of security, the prestige that comes with that. He sees it, he lives it every day, and he's starting to imagine what that would be like for his beloved city of Jerusalem. So he gets this vision of what could be and what should be. Well, he waits till the next spring. And then when, his, when he's prayed about it enough and he's ready to go, he goes to his boss, King Artaxerxes, and he asks for some time off, a leave of absence with pay. And because God's hand was on him, Artaxerxes not only gave him several years off, he fully funded the whole project, including the walls, including Nehemiah's own personal residence. He gave Nehemiah great authority to be like a leader in that region. He sent armed security guards with him. Like He's just like, go, yeah, awesome. Do a good job. Make that city secure. And so Nehemiah does. And Nehemiah makes the long trip from Persia to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he doesn't immediately come in and call all the leaders together and go, you know what? You guys are living in appalling conditions, and I'm here to fix it. 
He, instead, he took a few days and he just like got the lay of the land. He went out literally in the middle of the night on horseback and he rode around the walls of Jerusalem or what was left of them just to kind of get a, what really is going on here. And it was bad. It was, it was worse than his brother described. So after he's been there a few days and he's seen it for himself, then he calls everybody together. And that's where we, we're going to pick this up. I want to just read this out of Nehemiah chapter 2, I believe it is. Let me find it here in my notes. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. So Nehemiah's got all the people of Jerusalem together. He says, Now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we're in here. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then he says this. He proposes a solution. Let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And then I told them a story about how gracious God had been on me and the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. So he, he gives this compelling vision. Everybody who was there felt a stirring within them. Realize, the walls have been down for 150 years now. None of the people who are there that day have lived in anything but a city without walls. They've grown up just assuming this is how it is. And then someone comes in and says, no, it can be different and it can be better. And they start to get the vision themselves and they hear how God's been involved in it. And they start to get excited and they're willing to work. And they did. Look at this. This is out of Nehemiah chapter four. So as they started to work, there was some opposition. The people who were around them didn't like the idea that things are starting to get strong and prosperous in Jerusalem. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead, just think of like, um, just think of gang names here. And that's basically what you got here. So these gangs, these thugs heard the work was going ahead. The gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Leader of this little gang of thugs is Sanballat. I, I like what Andy Stanley says. Like, Sanballat would be a great name for a puppy. But who names their kid Sanballat? Like, just go ahead and name him Lucifer right off the bat. Because he's not going to do anything good with his life. Just If you're looking for a biblical name for your kids, don't pick Sanballat, right? <coughs> so, Sanballat. And he realizes, uh-oh, we're not going to be able to walk into Jerusalem whenever we want anymore. We're not going to be able to take whatever we want. So they start trying to oppose the work. Last thing they want to see is a secure and prosperous Jerusalem. They start sending in spies. They start sending in uh, armed guards, people to try to threaten and intimidate to end the work. And it doesn't work. So here, Aaron talked about this last week in the message, if you heard it. And if you didn't, you can go back and get it on iTunes. They had this amazing plan. Nehemiah said, here's what we're going to do. So if they're going to attack us, I want you to work with one hand and hold a sword in the other hand. One guy's working, another guy's back here standing guard. We've got trumpeters all along. If your part of the wall gets attacked because he'd assigned families, this is your section of the wall to build. This is your section. Everybody had a hand in this. If you're attacked, blow the trumpet and we'll all go to where the attack is. And so they kept building and they didn't give in to the opposition that they were facing. So here Sam Ballot decides to shift tactics. If I can't just outright scare them, how about I distract them? And so he gets this really, to him, good idea. Why don't I just invite Nehemiah to come out and meet with me? And then Nehemiah will just have an unfortunate accident and he won't get to go back and the people will then give up this wall building nonsense. And so that's, but listen, you don't get to be cupbearer to the king of Persia by being stupid. Nehemiah saw right through this thing immediately. And he's like, I'm not putting up with this. 
So if you go to Nehemiah chapter 6, we're going to pick things up. And if you're a person who likes to write in your Bible, this is one of those times where you're going to want to underline something here. So here's, let's just read this together. This is out of the English Standard Version. Now when Sanballat and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, hey, come on, let's meet together. Let's meet down here, Plains of Ono, wherever you just pick a spot. But they intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Any of you ever sign your email with scripture? You ever like sign a letter like Psalm 1-1? How about this one? You know, like Nehemiah 6-3. Just sign your email at work this way. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come meet with you? Don't do that. It probably will not go well for you. This is powerful. The part that I want you to underline is where Nehemiah said, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Just think about how powerful that is. Whatever your motivation for wanting to meet with me is, good or bad, I'm not going to take my time away from the most important thing in my life to go meet with you because I'm doing a great work on this wall right now. The thing that God made me to do and I'm not going to leave it to go meet with you. Sometimes I think maybe we need to adopt that phrase. In fact, I would like you to just go ahead and read this out loud with me. Would you start getting this in your mind? Read it with me. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. I believe every single one of us here this morning, we're doing something that we could describe as this great work. Come on, let's read it again. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. That's when you get your priorities straight. There's something in your life. I know this. And if you've been doing what I asked you to do over the last several weeks, and you've been praying, and you've been inviting God to show you what that next important thing is that you need to have to set in front of you as your goal, you know what it is. I don't need to tell you. You probably know two or three things right now that God wants you to take on. If it's in your own personal life, if it's in your family, maybe it's something that He wants you to do as a ministry here in this church. Maybe it's something He wants you to do at your workplace. You know what it is. And what God is inviting you to do is start saying, I'm doing a great work right here, and I can't come down and do that. I can't get distracted from the one thing that God wants me to do. So Nehemiah's like, just, just give him the message. I'm busy. I can't meet. And Samuel is persistent, if nothing else. So the story continues. Verse 4. So they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them the same manner. In the same way, Samuel, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and it just goes on and on, trying to distract Nehemiah in any way possible to get him to quit working on the wall. Just, how's your schedule look? Hey, can't, you know what, Nehemiah, I know you're a busy guy, but have your people call my people. We'll get together. We'll figure it out. If you don't want to meet on the plains of Ono, that's fine. We'll meet over here. Just, here's the thing. The moment Nehemiah gave in and agreed to meet with them was the moment Nehemiah would lose his life. And I want you to know something. The moment that you let something else pull you away from the vision God gave you is the moment that your wall will not get built. Whatever it is that God has put on your heart to do, the moment you let yourself be distracted by something else is the moment that your vision doesn't come to be. If they'd killed Nehemiah, that wall wouldn't have gone up. And he knew it. And he was too smart to give in to the distraction. And there's some things in your life and there's things in my life. And here's how you know that you're on to the right thing. Nobody's going to put them in your calendar for you. Nobody's going to applaud, probably, when you say, this is my thing that I need to do. 
There's going to be so many things they're going to say, well, this is just, let's just do this right now. We need to get this done, and maybe later you can work on that. The most important things don't often have a deadline, an urgent deadline attached to them, but they're the things that you look back later in your life on, and you start going, man, I really wish I'd spent more time with. I wish I'd taken more time to pay attention to. I really wish that I had done. You're going to wish you'd stayed on the wall. I'm looking around, some of you, you got little ones, and that's awesome. If you're a parent of little ones, I know one of your walls already. You don't even have to tell me what God's put on your heart. Because if your kids are little, that's your wall. You're doing a great work right there. And don't come down. You got teenagers, anybody? I know they act like they don't want you to have anything to do with them or acknowledge that they exist. That's your wall. And whether they say it or not, they want and need you to be there for them. And they're never going to be teenagers again. And you're doing a great work. And don't stop. Maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's your nieces and nephews. Maybe it's your, I don't know. But whatever it is in your life, if you've got pictures on your desk or on your phone that you look at, that's your great work. And I don't want you to look back later and wish, oh, I wish I had spent more time. I wish I'd said no to that. I wish I had not done that, right? This is your thing. Some of you, I look around, some of you are younger people. And, and you're in high school, college, junior high, whatever. Like, I think even you know what your thing is. There are some people, you want to find somebody in your world who is not honoring God with their life. There's plenty of examples around you, I'm sure. But your one thing is, how do I honor God with my life, with my body? How do I do the wise thing? How do I do the next right thing? And there are plenty of people who will tell you, why are you bothering doing that? In fact, like just to do something that's godly right now, the way our culture is going, you're going to look odd just for doing what's just, the Bible says is normal. But that's your one thing. Where do you want to be standing five years from now? Looking back with regret or looking back with, I am really happy with the person I'm becoming because I focused on the one thing. And some of you can even say, like, maybe I am sitting here with some regret. But today, the fact that you are here means you're turning a new chapter in your life. You can say from this day forward, I'm starting another good work. I'm not going to come down from that. Nehemiah looked at Sam Bell and he's like, I don't believe you. I don't think you have my best interest at heart. I'm not going to stop. And they did not stop. And here's, this is the amazing thing. This is, I just love this part of the story. Nehemiah verse 15 of chapter 6. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished just 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. And they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. It was such a powerful thing. They, no miracles, by the way. Just a lot of people working really hard and a visionary leader who said, this is unacceptable and this will change. In 52 days, they built a wall around Jerusalem. And even the people who were enemies of God had to admit, this has got God's fingerprints all over it. And that's what can happen in your life if you will invite God in and ask him to help you with what he's placing on your heart. You're not in this alone. When you've decided you want to do something good in your own life or in your family or in the world, you're going to find everything that's good in the universe is lined up beside you and behind you to help you do that next right thing. You can do this. I, I, I tell you, I've seen this in our own church story. And some of you have been here just a few weeks relatively. You're kind of new. But let me just tell you a little bit. For some of us who've been here a little bit longer, we can shake our heads to this. I remember sitting in my office back in 2010, 2011, 
dreaming about what our church would be in the future. And I know what I was thinking because I wrote out a five-year plan and a 10-year plan. I did this every year and I revised it. I found that a couple of weeks ago. Oh, man. I just saw the memories that came back. Sitting there in 2010, 2011, we were at Harvester South Campus at that time. We were talking about making the three-year transition into being an independent congregation. And I looked at the things I had written down. In the first two, three years, there were a lot of things that we had to accomplish to make that transition. And we did successfully. It was great. And as I wrote those down, I knew they were difficult, but I knew we could probably do them. We, we need a place of our own to meet. We need uh, elders. We need to be handling our own finances. We need our offerings to be here. And, and they were big goals, but us together, we did them. But then as I got out to the five-year mark and I got out to the 10-year mark, I'm like, we need property. And then we need a building. And like, I, don't even, I remember laughing when I wrote these things down. I have no idea how we're going to have offerings or these kinds of things. And I was just like, I know that if we're going to go forward, these things need to happen, but I don't know how. And then when I find this a couple of weeks ago and I look at all the things I'd written down, even for 10 years in the future, they're all happening. Like here, three years early, some of this stuff's going to be done. And I just realized when God puts a vision on your heart for something, it could happen, and the only thing that will keep it from happening is if you stop along the way and you come down off the wall of the thing that God's put in your heart to do. Whatever it is, my hope and prayer for you, my hope and prayer for me myself, is that we won't come down off the wall before that vision is accomplished. Whatever it is. And the most important thing is to make God the center of your life and just to love Him with all your heart and all your soul and your mind and your strength. And to say, that's my vision is to become that person and to teach other people to be like that. And just to say, look, this is so important to me. And there will be distractions and there will be things that will try to pull you away. And like, and it maybe even comes from within you. Do I really need to stick to that budget? I mean, it really isn't going to be that bad if I just go ahead and put that on the card for this month and let it ride for a while. And you start to lose the vision of being financially secure. Maybe you have a vision of being totally self-controlled and, and there's been something in your life that's caused you to even maybe take a step toward addiction or you're totally addicted and you've you found sobriety and you're clean, dry, and sober. You're whatever it is and there's that pull to go back. Maybe you've envisioned your family drawing closer to God and you made the commitment. If we're healthy and we're in town, we're going to be in church and then things come up and you know how it goes and then one week missing becomes two weeks missing becomes a month missing and there are so many things that can distract us and derail us. Today, will you just make a commitment to God? I'm going to make the main thing the main thing. I'm going to keep the main thing the main thing. I'm not going to stop until what you've placed on my heart is realized, whatever that is. And by the way, I would love for you, if you feel comfortable doing that, to tell me what some of the things are that God's speaking to you about. Just between you and me, I just like to hear it. Don't have to, but I would love to hear it. And I would love to be able to pray for you specifically. Because God's got some great things he wants to do through all of us and, and through this church. And it's only going to happen if we'll trust him and do it.